Good morning, everyone. Hope you're enjoying this beautiful day outside while we're inside, but we'll trust that our love of God's Word will just warm our hearts instead of the sun outside today. Well, we've been going through this series on the book of Genesis as great literature, and I have my roving uh, microphone handlers, and they're going to uh, be able to address some of the things. But I just wanted to kind of get a little bit of feedback from you as to how you're processing what you're learning over these last four weeks. Uh, what are some of the things that excite you? What are things that you're concerned about? Uh, what are the things that are on your mind? Anybody want to share? All right, we have, uh, well, wait for the microphone and make sure it's nice and loud so everyone else can hear. Uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> no, uh, how to identify the hero or heroine in, and, and looking for outside things that bring the story into right. understanding, I guess, is the word. I'll give you a big hint as to who the hero is in any story. It's God. And I, I, I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek, but the hero, the protagonist is the official term, is always going to be God. Because there's some stories in Genesis where everybody looks bad. You got the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. That story, chapter 16, everybody looks bad. So you can't find a hero, except you see God working behind the scenes to accomplish his plans. But the, the idea of identifying the characters and the heroes, uh, those, uh, it's interesting to read these stories it is God's word, but they are also great literature, great uh, stories for us to track. So thank you for that comment. Anybody else want to share? How has this uh, changed your thinking or reading of the text? All right, we have another. Being able to read, I think, from an informed historical perspective yes. is really uh, wonderful and gives us so much more insight into the time in which this book was written. Right. The events happened. We deal with the Bible as history, but I think now we also get to enhance it with also how that history is, is given to us. Talking about the stories this way, with God being the hero, reminds me of the last verse of Once to Every Man and Nation, Standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. Yeah. Amen to that. So God is the one that is in a sense, orchestrating. Even when the characters, the human characters, make really bad choices, as we saw with Abraham in some of the earlier accounts, God still is able to fulfill his promises. So uh, that's uh, we're so grateful that God, no matter what we do, God is able to still be a promise-keeping God to us. Well, let's uh, check a little bit. Like we said, one of the things that we've been wanting to do is to improve your wow factor of the Bible. Uh, I think we're certainly impressed that God has given us his revelation, but I think it also does enhance our appreciation of him when we realize, wow, you've, you gave it to us in this way, you've organized it like this, but then also skill building. I'm a professor. I just finished teaching my spring semester, last spring, spring semester class at Moody last night. So uh, you're my, uh, again, my fix for teaching. So I want you to be able to continue to enhance your skills. You're still able to learn, right? That's why you're here. You're able to increase your knowledge and your ability. And even uh, at any age of life, you're able to improve your reading of God's word. And so I hope uh, even today we will give you a little technique to look for that can help you to understand God's word just even a little bit more than what you did prior. Also, too, 
we wanted to address our questions. We talked about participant reference. And I wanted to give you a couple homework questions, so I'm curious as to how you process that is, how is Sarah labeled in Genesis 12? And then the next one is, look at Laban. How is he identified? And then we had another question dealing with goats. We talked about props last week. And how do goats function literally, thematically within the book? We know what they are. They're four-legged creatures. But what do they do when we encounter them in the text? Is there some type of mood or theme or concept that we should be looking for as we encounter goats in the text? So let's take a look at Sarah first. Anybody look at Sarah? Any observations about how Sarah is labeled? So she's beautiful. All right, let me bring up. uh, It's kind of small because it's kind of the condensed. So it's kind of a condensed version of chapter 12. But there's all of the reference to Sarah in Genesis 12, all in red, whenever Abraham talks to her or Pharaoh or the Egyptian officials. So we get to see all the labels that are used of Sarah in Genesis chapter 12. We know that one of the physical descriptions is that she's very beautiful, even at her age. She's very beautiful, just like all of you ladies are, right? All right, so... One of the things that we talked about last week is how to look at characters, labels, as a means to give you insight as to how we should view them or how the characters view each other within the story. Any observations? This is, this is again, a little, uh, you have to think on this, but I was just curious if anybody noticed anything about Sarah and how she is labeled in Genesis 12. Some of these are very subtle, but you can begin to pick up on some of these things. Notice it starts out that Abram took Sarah, his wife, so we clearly know her relationship. She's the wife of Abram. And then it goes on, Lot, his nephew. And he came near to Egypt, and he said to Sarah, his wife. So again, we already know that Sarah is his wife. We've already been told that. So we emphasize, we stress that husband-wife relationship here. So this is how we can begin to mine the data, as it were, of how this narrator, Moses, is telling us. I know that you're a beautiful woman. All right, so she's of the different gender than Abraham is. And then when they see you, they will say, this is his wife. Again, that's what we already know. The relationship is already existing there in the text. Uh, But they will kill me, but let you live. Please say that you are my sister. So again, we know the story. He's trying to pass her off as a sister rather than a wife. Because he feels that if he's seen as her husband, they're going to kill him so that she's free to marry an Egyptian. So he tells the, the hatches the plot to tell that she's his sister. And then when the Egyptians, look at how when Abram came, did they see the wife of Abram? No. What did they see? Just what Abraham planned all along. A woman. A unattached woman. Not a wife. So again, his plan is working. So the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Notice, she has many different labels. She is wife of Abram. But here she is, just a woman. So what's happening here is the narrator is letting us see that Sarah has been, in a sense, de-wifed. 
And that's Abraham's plan. That's been his plan all along. So when Egyptians see her, they just see her as just an unattached woman. And therefore, they treated Abraham well for her sake. But look at what happens in verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. What does God call her? Not sister, like Abraham says. Not woman, like the Egyptians see her. What does God call her? Wife. And calls her by name. She's been kind of depersonalized. She's been, as we sometimes say about what happens with a lot of women... She's been objectified. She's just an object. She is a trophy for the Egyptians to look at. So you see how subtle this is. We see that trophy status is being displayed even in how she is labeled within the text. And then once we find that God says, no, she is Abram's wife, what happens? A plague comes on the Egyptian household. So God has the right perspective of who she is and judges the Egyptians for what they do. And then Pharaoh calls, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I, so I took her as my wife. Then take your wife and, uh, and take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they escorted him with his wife. So once again, her wife status, which was stressed at the beginning, is what? We're now come full circle. She's back to being a wife again. So just even a subtle little descripting, looking at how Sarah is labeled. Now, let's talk about Laban. Anybody look up Laban? Did you track the character descriptors, or not the descriptors, but the titles for Laban? Anybody do that? If you have to do it over several chapters. But anybody look at Laban? Come on now, I know it's the getting to the end of the semester, and uh, just like my students are getting a little lazy. Uh, yes. Right, we know his character. He's, uh, oh, the, the, the idea that he's deceitful or devious. He's just like Jacob. But I wanted you to track how is he labeled? What is the relationships that he's known by? Just like Sarah is Abram's wife or woman. Yes? Oh, wait, we gotta, we got to get at the microphone here. Okay, this is, uh, this is the Laban. Uh, where is that called? He's called the father of, of Leah and Rachel. I don't think he's the father. Uh, he is a, a relative, but he's not the father of Rachel and Leah. Well, here is the... Laban is first mentioned, and... The first one to label him is Rebecca. That is, of course, Jacob's mother. And she refers to Laban as my brother. So Laban is first referred to as a brother of Rebecca. Next chapter, he is referred to as mother's brother. Again, Rebecca is the uh, point of departure. So it's Rebecca's brother. So in a sense, that's the... Uh, Jacob calls her my mother's brother. Basically, we call mother's brother what? An uncle. So basically, we're stressing that uncle relationship that Laban is. But notice, we get a little bit further in the story after Jacob's had several uh, confrontations with Uncle Laban. He is now called Laban the Aramean. Why is he called now Laban the Aramean? Well, this is where, if it helps, if you know a little bit about history. 
The Arameans are basically modern-day Syria. And they were potential hostile neighbors of Israel. And so what's happening here is we're using a title that's going to clue you in as to what's happening in the relationship. We have this in the New Testament. When we first come across the disciples, one of the disciples is called Judas. But you know what John calls him? John labels him as Judas, the one who will betray him. It's letting you know early on that this is a problematic person. It's not letting you come to that conclusion on your own. It's giving you the hints that Judas is not a good guy. Even though all the disciples thought he had a good pedigree. But here now the author, Moses, is labeling Laban the Aramean. It'd be like... uh, I was trying to come up with a good illustration where uh, we can say, you know, um, Muhammad Atma. Who is he? He was one of the terrorists on 9-11 that flew a plane uh, into uh, one of the buildings. All right. Muhammad Atta. Now, we could just call him Muhammad Atta, but we can say Muhammad Atta, the terrorist. And so I'm using that label to let you know, oh, okay, he's a bad guy. Well, that's what's happening here. When later on in the story, he's no longer relative. He's what? An Aramean. He's showing his true colors in terms of the animosity. And what happens between the relationship between Jacob and Laban? There is friction. There is animosity. Just like we see later on in the history of Israel with the Aramean nation. So this is subtle in how all of this comes about. The labels that people are given by the narrator, by the author, help us to clue how we should view the characters ourselves. Notice, it's subtle. It doesn't come out and say, he's a bad guy wearing a black hat. We have to then track and look at these kind of descriptors, these characters. So he's really moving then in the story from Uncle Laban to Adversary Laban. So once again, it's subtle, but this is one of these small techniques that is used. Now, let's talk about goats. What did you look at when you... Where do goats appear in the book of Genesis? They occur in several places. All right, we got a hand back there. Wait for the microphone. Where do goats appear in the book of Genesis? At one point, they were used as a part of the offering. All right. They do get used as part of offerings. Uh, They are part of the animal sacrifices that Abraham makes in the covenant with God where they walk between the animal parts. Any other usages for goats? Yes. Jacob's disguised as Esau. All right. Jacob is disguising as his brother where mom cooks goat like it's wild game. Remember, I make tasty game. And then also... The goat skins are placed on Abraham's neck and shoulders and arms so that when dad feels, remember we talked about what Esau probably looked at last time, he's probably really hairy, not just, he's furry hairy. But that goat skin is used as as something to trick dad. Where else are goats used in Genesis? Okay, we have a... Where? Tents. Oh, in tents? I mean as uh, coverings, the the skins to, to make tents? Uh, I'm not sure there's an exact chapter and verse for that, but certainly we would know that they would have used animal skins uh, as uh, kind of devices to build their homes, their movable structures. 
Yeah, they also would give milk, and of course cheese and yogurt would uh, be uh, what would come from goats. There's some other stories, though, where goats appear. So let's uh, take a look. Jacob, we already mentioned this one, wears goat skins to get a blessing, to trick dad. Jacob uses goats. Remember we talked about this? We talked about the color scheme. He's using these peeled sticks to try to get more goats. So he's using uh, the process of reproduction in his superstitious mind uh, to get more goats for his herd. So he's scheming against Laban. They also appear when Joseph is taken and thrown into a pit. They take his special garment, and what do they do? They dip it in goat's blood. And then what's very interesting is the brothers, they don't say to dad, hey, we found Joseph's cloak. All they do is they bring the cloak and they say, dad, do you recognize this? And of course he does. And they don't have to say Joseph is dead. They let the garment be a evidence against Joseph's life. And so then dad thinks, oh, that must be Joseph. He's torn by a wild animal. He must be dead. But they use the cloak dipped in goat's blood. Well, what happens in the next chapter? Tamar. What does she receive as part of the relationship between her and Judah? A goat as part of the transaction. And so that's what's uh, going on there. So it's used as payment. What's happening here, just like we saw trees in the life of Abraham, stones in the life of Jacob, clothes in the life of of Joseph. Goats appear at a regular interval in the story of Genesis, but not every time, but most of the time they appear, there is an overlying theme of deception. So what's happening here? Jacob wears goatskins to deceive Isaac. Jacob uses uh, goats in the spotted, solid, uh, colored goats scheme against Laban. Joseph's brothers use the blood of a goat to deceive Jacob into thinking Joseph is dead. And the goat is used in the whole Tamar is deceiving Judah, thinking that she's a prostitute, when actually it's his daughter-in-law. And a goat is part of that story. So goats appear in these accounts in Genesis, and they bring up the notion of deception. So when we, it's like when we come across this in our reading, we should think, uh-oh, something may be going on here that's not right. That's deception. And there's a lot of deception in Genesis, but goats get used as that. But now I want to move on to some new material for today. I want to talk about literary structure, and I call it Oreo cookie. That's why you have an Oreo cookie in front of you, and I'll explain that in just a little bit. We have all sorts of sayings that we're used to in our world. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. John F. Kennedy Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And then we have verses from the Bible. Isaiah 5.20. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These are very specialized literary techniques. And I'll give you a whole bunch of names that uh, this is called. But this is a very common rhetorical device where you state something, you state another thing, you restate that second thing, and then you come back to the original thing. So notice, it's when the going gets tough, 
You repeat tough again, tough get going. Same with ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. All right. What this is having us reflect on is how do we read texts? I would venture to say most of us read the Bible like we are reading modern literature or watch a film or a movie. That is, most of our literature and films today have this kind of plot line. We call it the linear plot line, where you have progressive rising action, you get to a climax, and then you have a rather quick, what we call denouement. That's the typical plot line of most novels, most films. So when you read a book, or you watch a television program, or you go to the films, and you watch a movie, this is very standard. You introduce a tension spot, you see more and more tension rising till you get to a climax, and then there is a quick wrapping up. That's the way that we read literature today and we watch TV and films. But there's going to be a little bit of a problem because there's another way that we can read text or watch films. Another way is center plot. That is, we stair step up to the middle, and then we backtrack again on the other side. So we have A, B, C, D, and then we have a center, and then we back with, and this is the technical term, we call it D prime. We go D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. So we backtrack the, origi- the first half in the second half. Now that's going to cause us to have to rewire our brains and how we read texts. Because if we're looking for the thing to be at the end, because that's the way our brains are wired to look at films and, and read stories, this is a different reorientation. So now we have to look at how the authors, the original author here, constructed the content. Was it linear like we have, or was it center structured? Now, what we call this is a technical term called chiasm. More and more is being uh, written about it because more and more people are beginning to see how many there really are of these structures in the Bible. It consists, like we said, of a series of elements followed by corresponding elements in reverse order. Elements may be single words, phrases, sentences, or even paragraphs. They could be lexical based on individual words or even thematic. We have, what we have is produces symmetry. You balance. Either side of the center is balanced. Whereas in the normal plot line, it's way out of balance. I imagine many of you watch TV programs or films especially, and you've been bought into this storyline, all this conflict, and they get to the quick resolution at the end, and then they ride off into the sunset. It's kind of like, I want more. I want more. I want to find out what really happened after this. But that's not the way our films and books are. They leave you kind of with a quick ending rather than kind of satisfied with the full story. So now we have the different way of organizing content that is based on a center pivot. So the focus then is on the pivotal theme, and it presupposes that we have a crossing point, a tipping point in the story. It's named after the Greek letter key. That's why, hence, chiasm. You also have in your brain the optic nerve, and uh, they talk about that being a chiasm because it's uh, kind of a, a nerve that crosses. But look at all of the aliases this structure has been called by literature specialists. 
It's called the palistrophe, the arrow point, the concentric parallelism, inverted structure, Janus parallelism. Where does Janus come from? Janus, Janus is a Roman god. We have the month of January. Janus is a two-faced god. It, that's why the month of January is two-faced. One is looking back and one is looking forward. So that's the origin of January. It has two ways it's looking. It's looking back and it's looking forward. Well, we can say that of this structure. We have at the middle, and you're looking back, and you're looking forward. And so it's called Janus parallelism, or inverse parallelism, or the envelope structure, or the symmetrical alignment, or ependus, or inclusio, or ring structure, recursion, even the bifid. You can see the two, two parts, the pivot pattern. All of this, so whenever I do research about this structure, I have to plug in all of these search terms to find out all of the articles that deal with this because it's given all of these different names for this phenomenon that we're talking about. But I have a very simple analogy. I call it the Oreo cookie. Everybody can understand an Oreo cookie. So I want you to take out your Oreo cookie now, all right? You now have permission to get your Oreo cookie. I want to say thanks to Karen for providing these cookies for us as our object lesson. So let's give Karen a hand. Thank you, Karen. And she thought you were extra special because I noticed these are called double stuff Oreos. You guys are special. She really likes you. So uh, she's taking good care of you. Now, with the Oreo cookie, what do we have? We have the outside wafers. We have two of them, right? How much of the white, how many white stuffs do we have? Just one. But we have a structure. We have the chocolate wafer on the outside, on both sides, and in the middle, we have the cream, the good stuff. Now, you remember, you remember, I, I'm not, I hope I'm not that old, you remember, too, the commercial, oh, the kid will eat the middle of an Oreo first and save the chocolate cookie outside for last, right? So let's practice that, all right? Take your Oreo cookie, and here's the technique if you never learned it. Take your cookie and twist. Just do a slight twist. Just a slight twist. <clears throat> and you bring that wafers apart. And then you have the creamy middle. And then, of course, you just take, if you have teeth, and you uh, eat that creamy middle. Mmm, That's the sweet, good stuff. Not that chocolate wafer is good, too. But this is the creamy middle. What I want you to think about then is when you read biblical stories, narratives especially, you have to look more in the center, not at the ends. You have to look more at what's happening in the middle of the action rather than, as we're wired, to look at the end of the story for a climax or a conclusion. And so we have to rethink how we read texts. So again, our goal is to get to the creamy middle. So what's the importance then? Why is the center so important? Well, because it's often the hinge in the plot line. It's the pivot point, literally, of the story. Everything flows to this, and then there's a hinge, and then everything backs away from it. We also then have a major turning point. Oftentimes it is a pivotal event that helps us to understand, oh, that's why this is going on. It also helps us to have a point of balance from which everything kind of radiates. And then it's a theme 
and this is why it's helpful for us to notice these, it is often a theme that the author wants us to ponder. All right, so let's take a look. It can happen on a verse level. So here is Genesis 2.4. The heavens and the earth, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice what we have. We have A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime. We have heavens as the chocolate wafer. Inside we have earth and earth and B and B prime, but then we get to the creamy middle. What's the creamy middle? The fact that God created this. And we use another term, he made it. So those are the two terms that are used in Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about creation. So the key thing, the center is, this is all that we see, the heavens and the earth, are God's creative work. So again, it's nothing earth-shaking, we kind of know that already, but notice how the content of this is ordered. And how can we tell that this is intentional? Well, look at the order. We normally say heavens and earth, but look at the end. It says earth and heavens. So it, hand, it, it intentionally reorders the order of content of heavens and earth in the reverse order so that we can see this middle pivot. So it happens on the verse level. Here's another example from Genesis 9. Whosoever, after the flood story, they come out of the ark and God gives his new command, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So just like John F. Kennedy presidential speech. Ask not what you, the country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So this is that type of thing. It's a very common literary device, and it's very pleasing, and it also helps to structure and order the material in such a way that the author wants you to encounter it. But it can also happen on the passage level. The Tower of Babel story is arranged in this chiastic structure. It begins, the whole earth had one language, and notice A prime, it finishes the language of all the earth. It says there, and B prime from there. They uh, each to, e to each other, each man the language of his neighbor, a reciprocity concept. But notice, we have the same exact phrase, come, let us make bricks, and then God says, come, let's confuse. And this is where it's a different kind of thing, it's called wordplay. And you don't really notice this. You can't notice this in English because it's impossible to do. But the word for bricks is, in the Hebrew, not laban, L-B-N, laban. The word for confuse is nabal. And so we have N-B-L. So what's, what's very tricky is what's happening in the story is languages are being confused but also words are being transposed as well as an internal reminder of what's happening on the surface. So again, how artful these stories are. So we take the letters of Laban, we transpose them, and we come up with Nabal, and that's what happened. Uh, also, even the term Babel. We call that, in poetic terms, onomatopoeia. I just love saying that. Onomatopoeia. What is onomatopoeia? That's where the word sounds just like it means. So if I pinch somebody, ow, well, ow, that's, that's exactly what, what I say. So that's onomatopoetic. Crash, that's an onomatopoetic word because it sounds exactly like what's happening. There's a bombardment of, of two objects. But babble, why is it called babble? Well, again, there's a play here. 
Babel can mean gate of God, because they were trying to establish a, some type of probably contact with the gods through this temple-like structure, ziggurat. But it also is onomatopoetic. It sounds like you're gibberish. And that's exactly what people are hearing. The Greeks did the same thing. Remember, even in the New Testament, we're called Greeks and barbarians. You know where barbarians comes from? It's not some, uh, some you know, uh, mongrel-like horde concept. It's the idea that to the Greeks, every other language that was on the earth sounded to them like bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians. And, of course, then that took on other connotations to mean warriors and uncouth and uncivilized people. Because to the Greeks, everyone else was uncivilized. And so they called everybody barbarians. That's an onomatopoetic word for what they were, what they were hearing. They were, all they were hearing, is like, you know that, when, you've heard a, when you hear a language that's not your own, it just sounds like barbar or babble, babble, babble. You can't make it out. So we have these word plays interestingly inserted into a story that deals with language. So once again, how creative these things are. But I want you to notice, they say, let's build for ourselves. God says, which the sons of men built. They build a city and a tower, a city and a tower. And what's the center? What's the creamy middle? What's the pivot of the story? God comes down to see. Now, we understand. Oh, yeah, I can understand that. The men of Babel build. God comes down to see. And things change. And we reverse the steps that we use to get to there. It's also similar, too, to what's happening on the ground. What are they building? They're building a tower. They're building stair steps, perhaps even a ziggurat. So even the structure, the ziggurat structure, stair step, moving up and up to a, a, a pivot on the center, is now we're using that same structure in the text to talk about a story about a tower that uses stairs. You see how creative these things are and how this text is being told. But notice... This is the thing that we should walk away with. God comes down to see. It's rather humorous when you really think about it. What are the men of the Tower of Babel doing? They're building up. What does God have to do? He's got to come down. Oh, what are these guys doing down there? So he's got to stoop. Again, God doesn't have to stoop. But he wants to show, using anthropomorphic terms, that he wants to investigate. So what's the walkaway point? What's the theological point? God could have instantly judged those men right away, right? But what does God do? Our God, before he judges, investigates and verifies that judgment is worthy. He's not a capricious God like the other gods of the ancient Near East. He is a God that takes time to investigate. What's going to happen also within the theme within Genesis? What happens in the Sodom and Gomorrah story? Does God instantly judge the Sodomites and the Gomorrahites? No, what does he do? He sends two angels to go investigate before judgment falls. So we get a character trait about our God. Our God is not one who judges indiscriminately. Our God is one who takes time to investigate the situation and then renders a, an appropriate verdict that fits the crime. So 
Again, we get character development about who God is from how these stories are told. So if we look at the end, we say, oh, at the end, it's everybody had different languages. So if that's our linear thinking, we think, oh, this is explains why we have different languages on the earth. And it does. But theologically, thematically, you or the reader should be also thinking about the pivot point, which is that God is an investigative God before he judges. So that's the theological theme that we could walk away with from that. I already mentioned uh, it could be larger than just a verse or a passage. It can be a whole account, like Abraham. Some of these are more thematic, but you have Abraham's call, promise of seed. We have the testing of the seed, Genesis chapter 22. We have a sojourn in Canaan. We have the sojourn in Gerar. We have the sojourn in Egypt. And uh, we have, uh, well, again, there's a little bit of, of, of order change. And there's a sojourn in Gerar again, where he denies Sarah. And then we have the separation away from Lot. At the end of the story, we have the separation from Ishmael. We have the war on Sodom, rescue of Lot by Abraham. We have the destruction of Sodom, the rescue of Lot by angels. So Lot needs to be rescued twice. So we have a doublet, what we call, a story that is repeated where Lot needs to be saved. He's saved by Uncle Abraham the first time, and he's saved by the angels the second time. We then have a covenant issue where the covenant is ratified with the animal parts that are cut in two. We also then have the covenant made with circumcision. And then we have Sarah's uh, effort to throw out uh, Hagar as option for Abraham's seed. And then, of course, Sarah now is blessed with a child. But what's the center? The center is now the sign of the covenant that God establishes with Abraham, which is circumcision. And we think that's kind of an odd thing. But once again, the point is that the pivot, the theme, the thing on which all things hinge, is we see progression of the covenant to this point where God now, in a sense, seals it with this sign of the circumcision, the sign of the covenant, in the flesh. And so that's the pivot, the theological center of the Abraham story. So what I I try to encourage people who read the Bible, whenever you look at a story, always spend time sniffing, that's why, you know, sniffing like a dog does, sniffing around the middle of the section. Uh, I was talking to Stephen before class, and he talked about, we talked, remember, how beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation are bookends, kind of the same chiastic structure here. And what's in the creamy middle? What's in the center, as it were, of the Bible? Jesus and the Gospels and the death, burial, and resurrection. So, in a sense, everything flows to that. And what happens? The New Testament, everything comes down from there. And again, we finish where we started. In the beginning, the heavens and the earth will be a new heavens and a new earth. So again, this structure is common for whole pieces of literature, not just individual verses or passages or even sections of material. This is a very common device that's used. Now, we can shorten it so you can see it quicker. We have Sarah and Pharaoh, Sarah and Abimelech. Again, people look at this. Why does Abraham lie twice about his wife? Well, once again, they're the chocolate wafers. Saving of Lot, rescue of Lot, covenant for land, covenant for seed, and the covenant with Abraham is the center. So again, that's the pivot point of the whole Abraham account. Everything flows of that and everything stems from that. So that's what we mean by this structure. Here's the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now here's where it gets interesting. We divide chapter 18 from chapter 19. 
But the author, Moses, wants us to see these things, these two accounts together. We can compare Abraham's hospitality in chapter 18 with Lot's lack of hospitality in chapter 19. So we can do those kind of comparisons. But we can also look at the structure. Look at, God provides posterity from a hopeless situation. Uh, Again, uh, we're dealing with the fact that Sarah has been barren, and now she is being told that she's going to have a son a year from now. Lot's daughters provide posterity, though, again, another hopeless situation. They're looking at the situation and saying, hey, there's no men around. The only one around is our dad. So let's sleep with him. Let's get him drunk. I'll sleep with him tonight, and the other daughter will do that again tomorrow night. So again, there's a hopeless situation, and one, God intervenes. The other one, Lot's daughters try on their own to do that. So again, that's the chocolate wafer. That's the structuring uh, bracket, the parentheses, as it were. And we have God considers Abraham's argument. God remembers Abraham's argument. Abraham left the place. Abraham returns to the place. The angels arrive. The angels, uh, or the Lord overthrows the cities. Start of nighttime, start of daytime. Lot bargains for others' protection. Lot bargains for his own protection. Lot is called a foreigner, an alien. Uh, Lot is told to flee. Lot is saved by the hands of the men. They pull him inside the house. Lot is saved by the angels as they pull him out of the city. There's the plea for Lot's relatives. There's the plea for Lot's relatives. God says, I'm going to destroy it. God says, I'm going to destroy it. And what's in the middle? Once again, why did God send the angels in the first place? To investigate firsthand, to have firsthand proof that what was going on in the city was worthy of judgment, just like the Tower of Babel. So once again, we see a similarity between the Babel incident and the Sodom and Gomorrah story. But what is it? The outcry before the Lord is great. What is going on in Sodom? It's not just homosexuality. Other passages talk about the crimes of Sodom. Uh, Ezekiel uh, talks about the fact that they were abusing the poor, that they were uh, not, they were uh, arrogant, they were proud. They were using their wealth and their prosperity for their own good, own needs and not tending to the needs of others. Yes, they also had bad morals. They wanted to sleep with the, the new men in town and violate them sexually. So yes, that's part of it. But it, the wickedness of Sodom is more than just sexuality problems. It is moral, justice, righteousness-related issues. And so what God has said is their outcry of the people being victimized is so heinous that God needs to rectify and deal with the situation. So once again, we see God is on the side of the underdog, the one that's being abused. All the people that tried to get help from the people of Sodom and Gomorrah weren't helping. In fact, they were being victimized sexually and otherwise. So God has to justify his destruction of that city firsthand because the outcry of the victims, not just these two angels, but probably many others that sought refuge in Sodom because it was, remember, well-watered. This would be the, the oasis that people would have wanted to get help from, but they're not getting it. And so they're proud, they're arrogant, they're insiders, they're cliquish. And then they use their power and, and their uh, might in bad, selfish, sexual ways. So again, the justification for why Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. We can look at it in the Jacob cycle. You see a pattern here? 
This is a common way that authors orient their material. And this is not just a biblical hidden code. This is not a Bible code. This is happening all the way through. I can show to you documents from Ugaritic literature, from Aramaic literature, from Akkadian literature, the descent of Ishtar, which is a very familiar ancient Near Eastern story about how somebody goes down into the gates of hell, as it were, uh, to uh, bring back out uh, the loved one, is basically go through a series of gates down into the lowest part of hell and then coming back up to those gates on the other side. That's a very common device all the way through the ancient Near East. So this is not some hidden code that only is used in the Bible. This is the way all people back then organized their content. So we have to, as modern readers, have to or, or think about, well, how did they craft their content? Not how can we read it like we read it, but how could we understand what they were using as a way to organize and structure the devices? Same with Joseph. Joseph and his brothers, Jacob and Joseph part. Joseph and his brothers, Jacob and Joseph part. Interlude, Joseph not present. Uh, interlude, Joseph is kind of nominally present at the end when his brothers are, are worried about their own life after dad dies. Uh, the reversal, reversal, Joseph is guilty. Potiphar's wife is innocent. That is, again, Joseph is not guilty. But again, uh, what we know to be true is, is reversed. And same with what happens, Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember what Joseph does? He switches the blessing, he crosses hands, he gives a secondborn the rights of the firstborn. So again, there's reversal. Joseph's the hero of Egypt. Joseph, the hero of Egypt. We have these trips to go down and get food, the tellings of how they go down there. And then we have the final test. This is where Joseph gets to see that his brothers are really changed. I wish I had time to talk about my favorite character in the book of Genesis. It's not Abraham, it's not Jacob, it's not Joseph. My favorite character, other than God, remember God's the main character, my favorite character is Judah. If you want an interesting study, don't focus the next reading of the last third of Genesis on Joseph. Focus on Judah, and you'll see why I think the Joseph story is really just as a a melody line for Joseph, but it's also a melody line for Judah. Now, here's the, the operative thing. Who is the seed line? Is it Joseph? Does the Messiah come through Joseph? Comes through Judah. So what we're seeing in the last part of Genesis is the transformation of Judah into a king-like figure. We're seeing Joseph also being very prominent and the savior of the nation of Israel. And isn't it interesting, throughout Israel's history, the two major tribes are going to be tribe of Judah, which is the more spiritually minded tribes, and then the northern kingdom, which goes under the tribal name of Ephraim, which is actually Joseph. So Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom is called Ephraim. The southern kingdom is called Judah. So the two main characters that we need to track as we read the last part of Genesis are those two characters, Joseph and Judah. But most of us, when we read Genesis, Joseph, 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 Joseph. And he's great, but he's only half the story. Read Genesis 37 through 50, but this time always keep your eye on Judah. 
and you will be amazed at what you'll see happening. Why? We have the story, Genesis 37, where we're introduced to Joseph, the brat who has the multicolored coat, tattletales on his brother. What happens? Next chapter, we have a story about Judah. We're wanting, the author is wanting you to see two characters kind of tracking. It's kind of like you you watch these films and there's two separate storylines. You are to be watching both storylines simultaneously. Most of us only focus on Joseph, but we also need to be tracking Judah as we read through the book of Genesis. So, we also have other ways to structure. We can structure to that pivot point, but sometimes we have what is called a panel, which is where we repeat a cycle. A, B, C, D, E, A, B, C, D, E. So we can take the look at Genesis 1 to 11. Creation, God's words to Adam. Flood, God's word to Noah. Adam's sons, Noah's sons. Technological development of mankind, such was the first musicians, the livestock, uh, all the, the metallurgy, uh, that's the end of chapter 4. We have then the ethnic development of mankind, the table of nations that spread out. We have 10 generations from Adam to Noah. We have 10 generations from Noah to Terah. We have a downfall, the sons of uh, God, then the daughters of men, and we have the downfall of the Tower of Babel. So we have, once again, deja vu type of structure, A, B, C, D, E, A, B, C, D, E. So we have these kind of things going on there. What are some so what's? Why is the Bible structural? And I can go on and on and on with example after example just in the book of Genesis of where this Oreo cookie technique is used. And I've just given you just a sampling. Like I said, it occurs on verse level, passage level, and whole section level, even whole book level, even whole Bible level. So this structure is permeates Genesis as well as many other narrative books. What was one of my goals for this course? To help you realize and understand Genesis is a literary and structural masterpiece. No wonder why people have revered it, even if they don't know them personally by salvation and faith through Jesus Christ. The Bible has been a well-revered book for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is simply because it's just great literature. These are great stories. It's more than just stories, but it is great Greatly told stories, well-structured stories, and that's what we see here. Genesis has several layers of structure that dovetail very, very nicely. Many people look at Genesis in this way. They look at it historically. And we can talk about, we can talk about the uh, primeval world, Genesis 1 to 11, and then we can talk about the patriarchal world, Genesis 12 to 50. And most commentaries, that's how they divide Genesis. They can talk about four key events, creation, fall, flood, nations. And we can talk about four, creative, uh, four important people in the patriarchal world, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Though they miss Judah. But that's the, that's, they look at that in a historical lens. We can also structure Genesis through another lens. These are the generations of statements. That occurs 11 times in the book. These are the generations of Terah. These are the generations of Jacob. These are the generations of Ishmael. These are the generations of Esau. There's 11 of those structural devices within the book of Genesis. So it's not like there's only one structure. It's kind of like a tapestry. You ever seen a tapestry? On the surface, it is very organized. All the colors, all the designs. Underneath, it's a hodgepodge of of strings tying every which way. Well, that's what we have here. Underneath, there are multiple different ways that the surface level is structured. 
we have the toledoth, or the these are the generations of statement. We can look at it historically, linearly. We can look at it chiastically. So all these things are going on uh, all simultaneously in the book of Genesis. And it speaks of God's character. I expect my God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, to be organized. Not to be messy. Not to be haphazard. Not to be random. I expect him to be do everything, like we hear in the New Testament, decently and in order. Well, wouldn't you know, the revelation that he gives to us is given to us decently and in order. So again, it speaks of the character of the one who's the author, who's given it to us. And I think this is a very helpful tool for the original audience. Now, we live in a book world. Now it's vastly becoming digital. But in the ancient world, they didn't have the luxuries that we have. They were not a book culture. They were an oral culture. They were telling stories passed down from father to, to son, passed down from tribe to tribe, passed down from generation to generation. And these would be the way in which they would tell their history. Prior to Gutenberg, books and printing was very, very expensive. I remember going to a Bible exhibit in Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and they had all these different Bibles on display, and I was just fascinated by this one very ornate, illuminated Bible. It was made by a group of monks in France. And so this monastery had well over 100 monks living in there, and their sole task was to reproduce the Bible, make Bible for the cathedrals, for the churches. They would produce a group of over a hundred, four Bibles per year. Before the printing press. How many man hours went into producing that, those Bibles? So having t- the text we have, and I have probably in my home, probably like some of you, you have multiple Bibles, multiple versions, multiple translations. The ancient world didn't have that. They didn't have, even if they were wealthy and could have scrolls or tablets, just think how many uh, bookshelves it would take to store the Bible on tablets. Where now I have a smartphone. Not only does it have my Bible, or the, not my Bible, but a copy of a Bible. It's got multiple copies of the Bible, and it's got commentaries and resources and maps and everything else on it. So I can now have this thing. I can travel literally around the world and have access to multiple Bible reference tools. But back then, the only thing you had was what? Your brain, your mouth, your ear to listen to these stories. And so if I want to tell these stories, this is a very perfect mnemonic device. If I'm telling you the story of the Tower of Babel, and I'm trying to do it from memory without having a text in front of me to recite from, I now have an outline to tell you the story. The language of all the earth, and I know I'm going to finish with that at the end of the story. And so it's a way for a storyteller to have an outline for an oral culture. Remember, God wants to communicate to us. But once again, the center is in the pivot, and that's where it's at. All right, we'll end with this. It's a positive, constructive art in that it calls for an attempt to hear the biblical narrator the way that is intended to be heard. I'm all about wanting to make sure you understand the Bible on its own terms. 
And part of that on its own terms means you didn't understand how it's organized. So instead of looking like we do at the end for the climax, we need to be looking at the center. And then also, it's another tool in our toolbox to help us to understand and process and read these texts. What can you do for yourself? How do you find these things? Students come to me all the time. Professor, I'll never be able to see these things on you. I need somebody else to point them out to me. And there is a certain sense that, yes, we can rely on those who have maybe a little better eye to see these things. But there is subtle things you can do on your own. Whenever you see something repeated, what should you do? Look for other repetitions before and after that. Because if you see something repeated in very close proximity, you're probably, most likely, dealing with the chiasm. And so that's where you're going to start, is you're going to start with, oh, the two of them walked on together, Genesis 22, a couple verses later. The two of them walked on together. Oh, the pivot is Abraham and Isaac talking. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering, my father? God will provide. See, that's the pivot of the Genesis 22 story, another example of a chiastic structure. But it goes on back from there. So look for repeated words and then expand outward and Always spend time in the middle of a story and see, and most likely you'll notice that there's themes, concepts there that are very important for us as readers to contemplate. The end, or is it the middle? And uh, so that's uh, what I want you to think about. Homework assignment, and then I'll pray. What I want you to do is look at the Noah account, this flood story account, and see if you can see this centering device in the story of Noah. Now, that's several chapters. That starts basically chapter 6 and goes all the way through 9 or 10. So see if you can see the chocolate wafer brackets to get to the creamy middle and see if you can detect and we'll, we'll uh, show you what that creamy middle is. So there is one. I'm not sending you on a goose chase. There actually is a structure to the flood story, and I want you to see if you can begin to isolate it on your own. Father, thank you again for the way that you've communicated to us. You've given us your word, but also in a very organized way. Uh, help us to tune ourselves better to how to process these texts in ways that we can understand what your goals are as readers of these texts. And so may we uh, look for these themes and help us to understand uh, what your character is and how you operate in this world. Thank you for these men and women who are wanting to learn and to grow in this area. And Father, I pray that you'll even uh, this week give them encouragement as they open up your word and see these things with their own eyes. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you.